This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Well, the midterm elections are five days away. Later in this hour, David Dan will report on politics in California. And later in this hour, we'll have something different. There are movers, there are shakers, and there are shirkers. Sandy Tan will be in studio to talk about Shirkers, her amazing documentary about a film that was lost for 20 years and then found. It's streaming now on Netflix. That's later in this hour. First up, the midterm elections are about Trump pretty much everywhere. John Nichols has our report. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, John Nichols, of course, is national affairs correspondent for the nation and author of the book Horseman of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It is a pleasure to be with you, John. Well, Donald Trump is holding rallies, 10, I think, 10 rallies over five days before the midterm elections. How bad do you think it's going to get? Oh, it's pretty bad already, John. Uh, I, I, You know... I think I tweeted today at a point when Donald Trump, shortly after Donald Trump had sent a tweet out, uh, promoting a Republican candidate um, who he had run into while uh, in Pittsburgh for mourning the victims of the, the Temple shootings. And I thought, well, that's, when you're when you're spinning something political out of that, um, it's it's about as low as it can go. Yeah. And and then I thought to myself, no, that's that's just wrong, uh, because every time I have thought Trump hit the bottom, uh, it's just been in the next day. Yeah. Uh, so my sense is we're going to see a lot of really ugly stuff. I'll be very blunt with you. Um, and I think you saw it writ largest. Uh, with the uh, announcement at the start of this week that he believes he can overturn the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which is an incredibly <laughs> vital amendment. Yes. Um, it's our favorite. It's really one of our favorite, along with the first. The 14th is pretty close to the top. It's a good one. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a really, really good one. And I, you know, I, I had a friend who ran for sheriff once, and they were asking him some question about, you know, the Constitution, different amendments, things like that. And he says, it's not like my whole Constitution. I like the whole thing. <laughs> and, and, and I got to be honest with you, I am one of those people who really has a high regard for the whole document. There's, there's you know, amendments and elements that I like more than other ones. You know, I'll admit that. But generally, I'm very respectful of the document. And one thing I know, John, mm-hmm. is that nobody who swears an oath to protect and defend and advance, you know, the Constitution of the United States as, as president uh, is supposed to imagine that you can overturn it with an executive order. Uh, and the reason I belabor that for a moment is because I think that uh, that's a really big deal for this election. As we pay attention to it, The things that Donald Trump is doing at the close of this election, the things he's saying to energize his base, remind us 
of how vitally important it is to check and balance his presidency. Yes. Because left to his own devices, with the courts and the Congress on his side, there is no telling what he might try to do. Well, Trump's closing message is uh, basically, be afraid, be very afraid of that caravan. Uh, They're coming to get you, and the Democrats are helping them. I have to say, it's not new to Trump to rely on fear and blaming Democrats for frightening scenarios. Uh, You know, we remember the Willie Horton ads that got that were so important to the George H.W. Bush campaign. I mean, there's really only one difference, which is now the president himself is delivering the message. It used to be the the candidate wanted deniability, and so they had some independent uh, anonymous group uh, pushing this this message. But really, the Republicans have relied on a message of fear for a long time. Yeah, when and, and in fairness, when they took the message of fear, of fear over from the Democrats, right? Because Southern Democrats used to use it. Yes. Um, look, we've had some ugly things in our politics for a very, very long time. And if we, you know, kind of go into the fantasy that, that somehow, uh, you know, we're seeing new things. Uh, no, that's not the case. But here's an important element of this and one to keep in mind. Uh, when the president of the United States personally advances this agenda, it is different and worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to agree. Because, you know, if you have some, you know, third-party group, uh, even if they're coordinating in that, if they at least have that element of shame that says, well, we're not going to put our name on it. Right. Um, two, things, two things are very different. Number one that's different is that there is that element of shame. That, that's good in our society. We we should have that. Yeah, and in uh, fact, let me just interject here. Yeah. George H.W. Bush was very clear in saying, oh, this has nothing to do with me. This wasn't my idea. This is an independent group. Well, uh, and he may or may not have been telling the truth, but, right. you know, or, or we don't know who knew what or whatever, uh, but at least the shame matters. That's yes. number one. Yes. Number two, and, and this is really vital in this moment that we are in, although it's always been you know, true. The presidency truly is a bully pulpit. And you take a message that gets, you know, in TV ads, campaign money, a certain amount of traction, that can get you so far. When the president is pushing that out through social media and, frankly, a huge amount of cable media in this country, uh, as well as right-wing talk radio and that, this it's animated at a level that is, is far more troublesome. And and then when you have the president it literally degenerating into the worst sort of conspiracy theories, as he was, you know, he's asked questions about it and pointing fingers of blame and saying who he thinks is paying for it and stuff like that, yeah. when that's just not the case. Um, it's It's a very dangerous politics. And it's a, it's, it's a bad politics uh, on the baseline, but it's also a dangerous politics because there are people, a lot of people, who take what a president, even this president, says seriously. Yeah. Well, and, the basic question— so I really think that where Trump has gone in this final stage is bad. Yeah. Uh, 
Then we have to ask the question, is Trump's message working? The New York Times reported this morning, uh, I'll quote, Tuesday's House election may mark a generational break with Republicanism among educated, wealthier whites, especially women, who generally like the party's pro-business policies but recoil from strident, divisive language on race and gender. But rather than seeking to coax voters like these back into the Republican coalition, Mr. Trump appears to have all but written them off, spending the final days of the campaign delivering a scorching message uh, about a migrant invasion from uh, Mexico. I-, I wonder if you agree that it seems like Trump has written off uh, a significant part of the Republican base. We will find out. And and so this is where I may part a little bit with the New York Times. I think a lot of us thought in 2016 yeah. that Donald Trump had written off a significant portion of the Republican base. Yeah. Right? Because when the uh, Access Hollywood video came out, and, and the reaction to it was not one of, of, again, of shame or apology or, or some sort of effort to address, you know, what we were seeing before our very eyes, um, he still got a huge vote from the Republican base. You know, it, that, that base held for him. Yeah. And it was sufficient to you know, pull him across the line in a very narrow uh, victory, losing the popular vote, but enough to, to get the, the key states in the Electoral College. And so I think we are at a test point, John, and, and I say it you know, very seriously. My sense is that this is playing badly. My sense is that the, the really unsettling times that we are in uh, are, in fact, causing a lot of people to say this president is saying and doing things that they just go too far. And yeah. he is, he's not trying to keep the country together. He is trying to divide the country. So I do think that's my personal view. But if I, as an honest commentator on these things, I have to say we will find out sometime very late on the night of November 6th or maybe early on November 7th. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with John Nichols of The Nation. We're talking about politics in America. Uh, there's a new Washington Post poll just came out a couple of hours ago. Likely voters in the midterms, they say, are 50% Democratic, 46% Republican. Then they break it down. The top Republican groups are college-educated white men and non-college white men and women. I was a little surprised to see that white women who didn't go to college, working class white women, support the Republicans just as much as uh, as white men do. Of course, the biggest Democratic groups, no surprise, non-whites, white college women and young people. So basically, it's not that all women are anti-Trump. According to the Washington Post poll, it's basically college-educated women. Doesn't that change the kind of campaign you run if uh, if you're focusing on winning Repu- formerly Republican white college women? Uh, it, you know, you're, when you start getting so into the, the, the tactical stuff here, I, I think it's a little dangerous. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, I, I think that uh, that there are cases in this country of Democrats who have run smart 
intersectional campaigns that have addressed the the circumstance of all working class people. Mm-hmm. Remember, a huge portion of working class people in this country are African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, and of course the young people we talk about. You know what I mean? It's a yeah. there's a lot of working class people in this country. There are some candidates running this year, like Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, Sherrod Brown in Ohio. I think we will see. It's a closer, tougher race. John Tester up in uh, Montana. Montana. Beto O'Rourke down in Texas. Candidates who have, to my mind, delivered a message that crosses a lot of these lines, that, that... that really does try to connect people up. Uh, and and I'll tell you, you know what, what connects a lot of these candidates is a willingness to go much further on the issue of health care yeah. than most Democrats do. To literally say, yeah, we're going to protect your pre-existing conditions, of course. <laughs> we're going to defend the Affordable Care Act, of course. But then we are really going to explore options to expand this thing out, either with a single-payer plan or with letting people buy into Medicare and Medicaid. You know what I mean? There are different variations. I'm not saying there's a one-size-fits-all here, but what I am saying is that my sense is that you can connect with all sorts of folks, but it does have to be a bolder message. You're not going to connect on the margins, and you're not going to connect just simply on saying Donald Trump's a bad guy. There does have to be a deeper message, and I think we're going to see some tests of that. You know who else is doing it, by the way? Who else? It looks like we'll see is Andrew Gillum down in Florida. That yeah. Andrew Gillum campaign is yeah. in Florida. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about some of the, the interesting uh, campaigns here. The Democrats, of course, want to take control of the House. All the experts tell us they will succeed. What what? To you, are the mo- we've we've talked here about a couple of Senate races. You've mentioned the governor's race in Florida. What about what are some of the most significant uh, House races from your perspective? Well, I mean, I think there are many levels on the House races. Uh, first off, it's important to recognize that the House is going to change, and it's going to change substantially because we're going to have a whole bunch of young, very progressive women come in, no matter what happens on the overall thing. People like Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, uh, Minnesota, Rashida Tlaib coming out of uh, the Detroit area, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming out of New York City. You know, we, there's a lot happening uh, as regards to the change of Congress within the Democratic Party. Now, the question is, will this new generation of women uh, and, and young men as well be built out? And you're going to see some real tests in places like Omaha, Nebraska, of all places, where Kara Eastman is running uh, a tremendous campaign that really does pull in, you know, so many of these progressive issues. It's a real grassroots campaign. It's in a winnable district, but a hard one. There's no question of that. If this turns out, and remember, this is the kind of thing that comes at the end. It, It takes off at the end. If it were to turn out to be a good year for Democrats, where they didn't just win the House by, you know, two or three seats, but won it by 25 or 30, which, you know, like an advantage within the next House of 25 to 30 seats, you're going to see people like Kara Eastman coming across the line and winning. And that's a big deal uh, because 
these are still possibles around the country. And as I look around the U.S., I see a lot of cases where um, we have, you know, A, the races that are likely to be won. There's some in Virginia and Pennsylvania, a few other places. That's step one. Then you have the, case, the, the places where, you know, it's possible if it's a good year. And then, if I can just focus for a moment on the unique cases that, that play out of the moment that we are in. And my favorite one is in northwest Iowa, where uh, Steve King, who I, I think we can, you know, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, can, can fairly say is one of the worst people ever to sit in the Congress of the United States. Yeah, we call him the horrible Steve that? King. We call him the horrible Steve King. Yeah, and that's really gentle. That's a gentle <laughs> phrase, I, I think, as regards Steve King, because, um, you know, <clears throat> you tell me in the United States of America, if at the, at the close of your campaign, it's revealed that you've been in Austria meeting with neo-Nazis, or at least people who've been associated with neo-Nazi uh, politics and, and that, uh, that usually is harmful to you politically. Yes. Uh, I know Steve King has sort of rewritten a lot of the rules and gotten, you know, a lot further politically than, than we thought was imaginable. But in many ways, he's sort of like Trump, you know, the first variation on Trump, right? I mean, the guy who suggests uh, just how bad it could get. And there is some evidence not a guarantee, but some evidence that he could be beaten. Um, there's been some polling that suggested that the race is closer out there than anyone expected. That's an overwhelmingly uh, conservative, even you know, pretty solidly Republican district. And yet this, this guy who's running against him, uh, who is, a, if you can imagine it, a, a you know, best known as a, as a baseball player and a, you know, a, small farmer, working class guy, uh, J.D. Uh, Scholten, I believe. I hope I'm... Yeah, J.D. Scholten. Out there a little bit. Yeah. Is, you know, he's viable. He's getting endorsements from uh, the newspapers in the district. Uh, there's people really stepping up and saying, you know, something's got to happen here. And um, I happen to think that, that that race is, you know, it's sort of emblematic of this year. If Steve King can be defeated because he has gone to such extremes, and if he is harmed politically because those extremes are exposed at a time when our country is frankly so vulnerable because of things that have happened, uh, then you know you you get one of those results that doesn't come every time, that that even you know of the moment, and yet could be perhaps one of the most instructive and powerful results of, of November 6th. So I'm watching races like that. I'm watching a bunch of races, but that one I've got a special eye on. John Nichols, readamitthenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure, my friend. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and Trump Watch Podcast. Next up, politics in California. David Dayan will report. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Later in this hour, filmmaker Sandy Tan will be in studio to talk about her film Shirkers. It won the award for Best Documentary at Sundance. But first... Democrats in California are hoping to flip five or six House seats currently held by Republicans. For a report, we turn to David Dayan. He writes for The Intercept, The Nation, the New Re- and The New Republic, where he's a columnist. And he's the author of the award-winning book, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Greatest Foreclosure Fraud. Last time he was here, we talked about Keith Ellison in Minnesota. David Dayan, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. I, I could also add in uh, to what John Nichols was saying about that Iowa race because I was out there just uh, three four weeks ago. And um, what did you what are, what did you think of uh, the challenger to Steve King, J D. Scholten? Yeah, I followed J D. around. You know, he has this really interesting strategy where he's visiting all of the thirty nine uh, counties in that very massive district. It's about forty percent of the landmass of Iowa. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a stark contrast between him and King in terms of just showing up. I mean, King doesn't even hold events in the district that, that aren't very tightly controlled. And, and this guy has been getting uh, very large crowds in very red areas in that district. So um, I'm glad it's now on the national radar. It really wasn't when I showed up there, but... Uh, you know, he, he that that could be something special. So uh, I I align myself with uh, the great Mister Nichols. <laughs> okay. Well, we want to f- focus on California uh, for the next uh, ten or fifteen minutes here, where the Democrats are putting a huge amount of energy and money, tens of millions of dollars, into flipping these five or six House districts in Southern California that Hillary carried. One of them is in L.A. County. There's only one Republican House representative left in Orange uh, County, Steve Knight, up in Lancaster and Palmdale. And yeah. uh, and uh, he's being challenged by Katie Hill, who's never run for anything before. And then in Orange County, uh, the rest of the seats uh, were especially interested in the other Katie, Katie Porter, a UCI law professor, my colleague, uh, and who's uh, challenging Mimi Walters in Irvine. Katie Porter is a true progressive, endorsed by Elizabeth Warren, supporter of uh, single-payer health care, consumer advocate. Katie Hill, not a progressive, and running in a much more uh, Republican district. Uh, what can you tell us about the two Katies? <laughs> well, uh, you know, Katie Porter... Uh, was someone who ran uh, in a very contested primary down there in yeah. Orange County against uh, uh, an also a UCI law professor, someone named uh, David Min, who was seen as more centrist, and she won that race. And so it's kind of a referendum on you know, this age-old argument of, you know, can you go too far to the left in these swing districts and still and still win? Or does, you know, authenticity and, and offering, you know, popular programs the way that, that Porter is when you're talking about Medicare for all, you're talking about free public college, uh, those kinds of ideas, not taking any corporate PAC money. Uh, can you do that? And, and regardless of ideology, can you, can you win? And, and, you know, that, 
both of these races have been sort of neck and neck, back and forth. This is kind of true of all of the contested seats in in uh, California, with the exception of one, uh, where Mike Levin seems to have uh, staked himself out to a pretty large lead. Uh, the other ones are all neck and neck. Uh, it, it's it's going to be very interesting to see uh, whether Porter can can come through. Uh, and whether Katie Hill against uh, Steve Knight, who, you know, uh, both Knight and Walters are pretty much down the line Trumpists. I mean, these, these are people who have towed the Republican Party line on vote after vote after vote after vote. Uh, so it's, it's you know, I, I would say that the Porter-Walters uh, race, because of the real stark difference in ideology, is kind of a bellwether race. For California in in uh, you know coming up next week, and the the other true progressive Democrat who's running for the House in it for in a, in a contested district is the one you mentioned, Mike Levin, down in San Clemente in Oceanside. This was a district represented by Daryl Issa, who was regarded as the most vulnerable Republican in the House, and who threw in the towel, apparently believing the district was going to go Democratic, which is pretty amazing for San Clemente and Oceanside. What do you do? You know what's going on down there? It's a changing district. Uh, I would I would say with some degree of confidence that Mike Levin is 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 going to be elected. You know, I don't want to discourage people from going out and voting down there, but um, uh, you know, ISA barely won two years ago. Yeah, a couple of hundred, couple of hundred votes. That's right. Because of the demographic changes in that district, it's uh, become more diverse, and it's become much more democratic. And uh, ISA certainly saw the writing on the wall by bugging out. Uh, and he's also, Levin is running against a woman, Diane Harkey, who has been beset with problems. Her husband uh, was uh, accused and, and convicted in, in a case of running a Ponzi scheme, money from which has helped fund Diane Harkey's political campaigns. She had a disastrous uh, uh, editorial board meeting with the San Diego Union Tribune where she couldn't explain any of this. The Union Trib uh, endorsed Levin, which for the Union Tribune, if you know anything about it, to endorse a Democrat is quite something down there in the San Diego area. So, um, you know, uh, part of this is the changing demographics of the district and part of it is candidate quality. And Diane Harkey has uh, stumbled her way through this campaign. Well, speaking of husbands accused of crimes, I guess we should talk about Duncan Hunter, the incumbent Republican in <laughs> eastern San Diego County, who's facing criminal charges for misusing, I think it's a quarter of a million dollars of campaign funds. He's blaming it all on his wife. And uh, this is like one of the reddest districts in the United States, but he's being challenged by a really interesting 29-year-old, again, progressive Democrat, Amar Kampa Najjar, born of a Mexican mother and a Palestinian Father, it, he probably won't win, but it's a, it's an interesting race, and the the uh, incumbent Duncan Hunter may end up in jail. Yeah, I wouldn't say probably won't win. I mean, uh, th this is a race that is polled fairly close. Uh, you look at the LA Times poll that polled all of these seats in in Los Angeles, and it was within a couple points. Uh, you know, this is one definitely where candidates matter, uh, and this is one reason why you can test everywhere. If you're, yeah. you know, Democrats are running candidates in, I think, every seat but three 
around the country of the 435 house races. And this is why you do it, because you never know if if a Duncan Hunter is going to get indicted, uh, shown to be uh, essentially stealing campaign donations for his own personal use, and put in a situation where you have a credible alternative. And uh, Kampanajar is is someone who is, uh, I would say, running pretty strong there as a credible alternative to someone who is essentially a, a you know an indicted criminal. Uh, I think we we should talk about the Senate race in California. The the progressive Democrat Kevin DeLeon, former head of the the uh, the state Senate, is challenging the incumbent Diane Feinstein. Two Democrats, uh, no Republican in this race. Uh, that's the result of the the strange uh, California the top two primary system that we've objected here to many times. Uh, yeah. uh, Feinstein is way ahead. What what are the issues that separate Kevin DeLeon with uh, from uh, Diane Feinstein? Well, there are many issues that 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 would separate them. I mean, Delion has been, uh, you know, he was the head of the state senate. Uh, he had a very good run this year. Laws that he wrote or co-wrote, uh, including ones to uh, establish net neutrality in California, to create a 100% renewable energy by uh, 2035, I believe. Yeah, that was uh, the, in that, California. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, all of those passed under, under his watch. So this is, a, this is someone with a very credible record. The problem is our, our top two system, which, you know, kicks these kind of ideological pri- fights that would be waged in a primary uh, into the general election. And, you know, there have been several sort of problems with uh, the ability for Delium to get traction. Number one is all these other seats in California. You know, Democrats are focused on taking back the House and, and possibly taking back the Senate. They're not as interested in a Democrat on Democrat race. And that has really, uh, you know, made it impossible for Delium to get the kind of fundraising to raise his profile statewide. I think uh, in the last uh, quarter he he raised only two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. They're they're you know most house candidates raised a lot more than that. The, yeah. the, the ones in 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 tough races, uh, and and so it's it's a problem of the system that uh, puts these these you know makes it very hard to defeat an incumbent because an incumbent is always going to likely get on that top two ballot. And then you have, you know, this fight in, in a place where it really shouldn't be. And, uh, and, and the other thing, of course, is that Feinstein has, and, and this is pretty public, and, and uh, Delion's certainly been talking about it, uh, you know, the donors that, uh, uh, you know, would normally cam- uh, donate to a, a progressive campaign in the state have been strongly discouraged from doing so lest they cross Diane Feinstein. And, uh, you know, the establishment has basically circled the ranks for Feinstein and, and told, you know, warned donors not to give anything to DeLeon. And, and that has, has really hurt his fundraising as well. So, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult. Every poll has shown it sort of in the double digits. What we know is that Republicans uh, in these top two Democrat versus Democrat statewide fights, traditionally over the last, you know, two or three cycles, they just don't vote. They, they, they leave it blank. 
and uh, that that has meant that even the what the polls show, it will probably widen even more if you take all those Republicans and say they're not actually undecided, they're just not going to vote. David Dayen. David, always great to have you on our show. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Shirkers. It won the Best Documentary Award at Sundance this year. We'll speak with filmmaker Sandy Tan. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry, quickly. But first, there are movers, there are shakers, and there are shirkers. Shirkers is a film that Sandy Tan and her friends made in 1992 in Singapore when they were teenagers, and then the film was lost, stolen. 20 years later, it was recovered. The story of the original film and the people who made it is told in a new documentary, also by Sandy Tan, also called Shirkers. It had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival 2018, where Sandy Tan received the World Cinema Documentary Directing Award. The film then went on tour to festivals all over the world. It's streaming now on Netflix. And there will be a screening and Q&A coming up in Los Angeles at LACMA, the County Museum of Art, on Tuesday, November 27th. Before she made the new Shirkers, she made short films that have played at over a hundred film festivals all over the world. Five years ago, she also wrote an epic and intimate novel, The Black Isle. <clears throat> the Black Isle, a ghost story set in Singapore in the 20th century. Sandy Tan, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Well, lots of people loved Shirkers. I was one of them because it's an amazing story, because you and your two best friends, Jasmine and Sophie, were such fabulous teenagers, and because the original Shirkers and the new one are so gorgeous. Uh, but let's start at the beginning in 1992 on what you call a sweaty little island. Yep. You say you were a strange girl as a teenager in Singapore. Yeah, because I was um, interested in things that you know most people were not interested in. Um, you know, I was I was interested in in art films. Um, you know, music that was not like that. Well, it's, it's Singapore in 1992, before the world of the internet, um, was very straight laced. It was just filled with you know grown ups yelling at you to to get better grades. Um, and and you know like just I went to an all girls school and then I went to a, a, a kind of a a, um, a school that had a drama program, and that's when everything changed. Um, you know, that's when we 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 had teachers from the U.S. and the U.K. and were teaching us, you know, all kinds of new things. And our world expanded, but the world outside of school had yet to catch up. Uh, there was that zine that you and your friends made before you made the movie. Yeah, I made a zine called "The Exploding Cat." Um, I was like, I, I was sixteen at the point, and it was my way of inventing the internet. Because when when you have a zine, and you connect to the world of zines across the world, you can send it around, and people discover you, and you exist. I mean, that was the first time I, I you know, I spent my A levels 
in Olaf was getting um, like mail from like Iceland and Japan and people like that, and it was like connecting with like-minded kids. So that was my first taste of the internet in the age like lo- the Stone Age before the internet. <laughs> and the film features two wonderful friends of yours, Jasmine and Sophie, teen rebels and film lovers. All three of you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It does. I mean, friends on 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 varying levels of friendhood and very different kinds of people we learn from the movie. Yes, and who you know, like female friends. You know, I think a lot of women have come up to me and 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 thanked me for portraying a very realistic version of longtime friends, like friends who've been friends for twenty years. You know, since you're a teenager, sometimes since you're children, and it morphs over time. And when you when you when you share a traumatic event. Like when our film was stolen from us in 1982 for 20 years, um, it changes that friendship and it complicates it. And, you know, um, it certainly adds a lot of tension to to the friendship. So um, <clears throat> Jasmine is still Jasmine. She's like a ball of fire. She's always angry. Um, and Sophie's the nicest person in the world, the most um, logical, sensible, you know, sensitive person who's, you know, filled with a sense of tragic loss over this whole thing. And the three of us deal with it in very different ways, um, but we are bonded and united by this one traumatic event in our teenage lives. There's one name we haven't mentioned yet, George Cardona, your film studies teacher, eventually your nemesis. Uh, He's the guy who taught you all about film, about Herzog and Fellini and Terry Malick and Breathless, uh, well, I, I learned a bit of that <clears throat> stuff before I met George, but he was the one who expanded my consciousness and, and basically was the first grown-up I met in Singapore who talked film, who lived it and talked it. And uh, he uh, became the, the cinematographer and director of Shirkers. Yeah, in quotes, yeah. He, he was um, the grown-up on the set, and the rest of it was, you know, it was like Bugsy Malone. We were all children. <laughs> like, we were teenagers running the set, and we were, you know, running the production, and he was he was a grown-up. He was ostensibly an American in Singapore in 1992. Uh, he was a man in his 40s, um, kind of unplaceable accent and, you know, very exotic in that strange way, but he was a grown-up, and he was a man. And therefore, you know, people trusted him with our equipment, and Kodak gave us free film because we had a grown-up. I mean, the rest of us were teenage girls. Like, who's going to trust us? But didn't it seem kind of weird to you that a a married guy with a baby would spend his nights uh, driving around Singapore with with you? Um, You know, the thing is, like, when you're 18, you think you're so special, and you think you're... (laughs) This is like, I mean, I didn't think of him as a grown-up man with, I mean, he was a grown-up man with a kid and all that. But, I mean, I thought of him as another, like, um, a teenage person caught in this body of a grown-up man. And Hmm. and he was a peer. I mean, he, you know, he certainly did not behave like the rest of the grown-ups we knew in Singapore were, you know, very authoritarian. And this is the background of how a man like this could get into our lives, um, the lives of, you know, I guess, intelligent um, teenagers who are rebels who are completely aware of the cliches. I mean, I was completely aware of the cliches that the optics weren't great, you know, that I was hanging out with this guy. But I thought the rules were different. I mean, like, you know, we were making our own rules. And you made this film. How many people worked on it? How many scenes did you shoot? Um, we had, like, we 
you know, we, 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 I managed to get convinced all my like high school friends to work on it for free. And then we had like about a hundred extras. I mean, mm. including like old people that Jasmine, my, my friend Jasmine and Sophie's, um, stole out of no folks home and brought them onto set and then returned them like before they knew what happened. And like kids, <laughs> like we, we stole them out of school. We, we hijacked buses. Um, I mean, we did. We hijacked buses and we shot on them. And then we, you know, we, we let them loose again. And and it was like 100 locations around Singapore in 1992. Uh, it was a road movie. So we had to go to 100 locations. Uh, and there were all these places that I felt were disappearing before our very eyes. Like uh, Singapore was changing at that point. You know, I was determined not to have a single skyscraper in the movie. And it was like all these special places that meant something to me that were going to be cinematic and myth- mythic. I was intent on creating a new mythology for this place that nobody knows about. To do this, you'd have to be a maniac. Plus, I was a maniac. Plus, you'd have to have talent. Actually, that's not my line. That's your line, I believe. Really? From the it's in my notes from the screening, to do this, you'd have to be a maniac. Plus, you'd have to have no, talent. No, I never. I, ne- I would never declare <laughs> that I have any talent. That's that's certainly <laughs> maybe not. Maybe somebody um, told that to you. Maybe um, somebody told it know. to you. I don't know. I don't know. But but you have to be a maniac. Yeah, I think Jasmine says that you have to be a maniac. Um, and, and maybe she said something along the lines of you have to be slightly insane and, and you have to be 19. We're speaking with Sandy Tan about Shirkers. It's it's screening now, streaming now on Netflix. And there's a screening and a Q&A with Sandy Tan in L.A. at LACMA, the County Museum of Art, Tuesday, November 27th at 7.30 in the Bing Theater. This is a free event Good idea to get reservations. You can get reservations online now at my.lacma.org slash events. Then you get a great big calendar and you go to November 27th and you you can make two reservations. Uh, what the original Shirkers is gorgeous looking. You have clips of it in, in the new Shirkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the colors are fantastic. Um, at the time that you were making this, I understand you never saw a single shot. You didn't have no. dailies. Did, why was that? Because this was 1992, and you shot in film, and you there was just no place to process this film in Singapore. It had to be flown oh. physically to like Australia or Thailand or Indonesia, someplace else. And um, you know, we shot everything before things were kind of taken away to be processed. It was a whole exotic process that we weren't kind of you know privy to. Because um, George was in charge of all that grown-up stuff, um, so we never saw it. We n- never knew. I mean, I knew it in my head. I knew it because I was on the set, so I knew how gorgeous these things were. We were, we we had these amazing, like elaborate production design. Like kids were doing it for free, um, and and we had the largest dog in the world, uh, do- largest dog in Singapore, rather, <laughs> and you know this giant wolfhound. And you know, I knew it was going to be this fantastic thing, but I had no proof for twenty years when this film vanished that it was it was what it was. So, a hundred people. A hundred scenes, road movie shot by teenage girl rebel rebels in Singapore. Explain where what happened to the seventy cans of Kodak film. Well, um, George Cardona, the mysterious man, um, disappeared with everything. <laughs> everything um, once we shot everything, so we never. Um, we, we you know he 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 just he just took it all away. And and it was it was that was the great trauma of my life and and the great trauma of my friend's life and and it altered everything. It some people 
think it altered the course of Singapore film history because that would have been the first independent feature film made there and certainly the first road movie and certainly the, the first you know type of film of its kind uh, shot in 16 millimeter Kodak um, you know and and all these people were pulled into this 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 crazy adventure by me and I, I just felt like I I didn't mislead them because I didn't know this was going to happen but you know I had pulled this whole bunch of people onto this whole adventure and and then the whale vanishes. So your teacher, George Cardona, did the shooting. Amazing shooting we He's can see now. He's a talented man. I mean, he was. Amazing shooting. Yeah. Then he stole the footage and then he disappeared. What do you mean disappeared? How can you disappear? Well, you know, you can disappear in 1992 um, before the internet was really happening. You can disappear when you just, you know, like... There's no trace of him, like, in terms of trying to get in touch with him. And after years, um, he just does not reply or there's no there's no way of getting hold of him because he, you know, you can just disappear. You can still disappear. I mean, it's more difficult now, but in 1992, you could. And, you know, we were three teenage girls who were no longer friends because of this, this thing that happened. We were living in different continents. I was going to school in England. Uh, Jasmine was going to school in New York and Sophie was in LA. So we were all splintered and George was ostensibly in Singapore and then he vanishes to God knows where um, with all these, the footage. And, you know, it's like trying to, I mean, the three of us not being together as, as a band, but also just trying to, as kids, like trying to tell the world to help you find this guy or locate him, just having somebody on your side. There was no grown-ups. I mean, it's just, we were completely on our own and it was just, he disappeared. So one of the, I would say, challenges in making the new Shirkers is how much of this should be about the mystery of your nemesis, George, disappearing with the film, and how much of it should be about you, your friends, the film, then and now. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I think I, I did hit a perfect balance, yes, I think. I think so, um, too. It took a lot of calibration. I edited this film over nine months, and it was a whole bunch of trial and errors. And then, you know, I decided that, you know, the, the way to reclaim this mystery of my life was to become a detective. And then I do become a de detective as I grow up and kind of begin to solve this great mystery of my life. And explain how the film was came back to you, how it was rediscovered. Oh, you want me to do a spoiler? Oh, um, I will okay. do a we spoiler. No, 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 no. I, I'll do a spoiler. I mean, as, <laughs> uh, you know, like um, somebody in the past. It's in the um, trailer. It's oh, in the trailer. It? The trailer, okay. there's a shot of a closet with 70 cans of film. Right, yeah, well, it was returned to me um, in, in 2011, 2012 by somebody who knew where the film was. And then um, I, it took me three years before I could open up those boxes Why? and deal with it. Because it's such a toxic, radioactive thing in my life that, that these boxes, they were like a ghost in my house. I mean, they, they arrived at my house. I stacked them up, these boxes, seven of them, and, and they became this kind of vertical coffin in, standing in the corner of my <laughs> living room, haunting me for, I mean, for three years. I mean, I just couldn't, I needed this, the kind of, I don't know, I mean, just the, I don't know, uh, courage as well as financial uh, courage to deal with these things. I knew it was going to be a huge expense, you know, digitizing this film, but also just, yeah. Anyway. So so at what point, there was three years between the time the box with the 70 cans of Kodak color film arrives. Mm -hmm. Interesting that George protected the film passionately for 20 years wherever mm -hmm. he was. Um how did you decide to make a film about 
the film? Did, was your original idea just to recreate the no, original my, 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 my original idea was never to do that because it was so, the story around it was so much more interesting yes. than than this film could ever be. And, and I was horrified because also the thing that we have not mentioned was that I played the lead role <laughs> as a teenage assassin in this this thing. I was this poker face teenager playing a teenage assassin. And I was just horrified because I knew, I, I you know, the role was hard to play because I, I wrote the script also. So I know that it was impossible to play and I played it impossibly. And I was horrified by looking at myself. That was one of the reasons why I did not want to look at the footage for a long time. I'm and then, shaking my head. I and, have to disagree with you. I thought you were great <laughs> as a teenager, but no, I'm. Um, I guess I'm. I, I was. You know. I guess I, I edit pretty well. Um, <laughs> but I, I. You know. I, I was. Anyway. So. So it was. Yeah. so a lot of this a lot of the new shirkers is about what you call the afterlife of the film including your life you Mm -hmm. life went on you yeah what did you do yeah um you know life goes on life was before shirkers and after shirkers um you know i i i i you know i i i I remained a storyteller um i was haunted by the the desire to tell stories and i couldn't get you know, like some part of me was taken away from me with making sure because and I became a film critic uh, when I was 22 in Singapore, kind of a kid film critic. Um, uh, and, Big and, newspaper, though. Yeah, it was it was the biggest newspaper in town, and I was the <laughs> film critic there. And then um, and then I did everything backwards, you know, going to be a film critic after you've made a film. And and then I, I became a novelist. I moved to L.A. I actually made some short films, but I came to L.A. and I wrote a novel called The Black Isle, as you said. Uh, yeah. And you also went to film school in there. I did. I did. I did. Yeah. How have we managed to skip that point? You well, made a you know, film. It's, you became a critic. My life, and is, then... my life is not structured in the in the, in the in the coherent way from beginning to end. It's like it, it, it's, it's, it jumps around, kind of like my film Shirkers. I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's what life is, though. Life never happens in the order that you think it's going to happen. And I wanted this film Shirkers this documentary to kind of reflect that and I think I've been hearing from a lot of people who kind of feel like it does reflect their lives or lives in general and I'm really really pleased because I yeah I thought this was kind of an experiment like a kind of a reflection of how I feel life is but somehow it struck a chord with a lot of people from around the world who's been writing to me from like Portugal and Colombia and you know places like that which is kind of astonishing to me. Could I just spend a minute on Going to film school, did you learn? You've already made a film. Yeah. Did you learn anything at film film school? I guess I learned to not shoot your first draft. <laughs> I mean, that was what we did on Shirkers. We shot the first draft. You should never do that. But I, it, it, it gave me discipline, I guess. Um, it gave me discipline, and it taught me about like how the Upper West Side of New York is kind of boring. <laughs> you, I went to Columbia. You went to Columbia yeah. Film School. And, uh, and well, let's see. Uh so you became a film critic, you went to film school, you wrote a novel, and then the box arrives with the 70 cans of film, and you spend three years waiting to open it. You get up the courage, you open the boxes, you have them digitized, then you write a script again. You're not going to shoot your first draft this no. time. What was the process of making the new Shirkers? It was me um, sitting there writing about a hundred drafts, mm. um, like changing, you know, you, you do the voiceover. You, I, I made this film in my garage in my, in my, I edit, edited this film in my garage and you know, talking into a mic that I bought off Amazon for $99. I mean, you can do this now. It's fantastic. Like being in the 21st century, making films, this is like the best job in the world. <laughs> um, so I, 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 you know, kept rewriting and writing and writing and writing and the, the narration and the structure and moving it around until it worked. Um, it was 
I learned my lesson. I would never shoot my first draft. But how, um, as you say, digitizing costs a yeah. lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, most documentary film uh, funding is for virtuous documentaries yeah. on social problems. Yep. You may have noticed this. I know <laughs> so, it was it was extremely it was extremely difficult, and also that that's part of the three year thing of just like setting aside money, borrowing money, um, you know, because no one's going to believe you like that you need money to to transfer this thing. What if it comes out like looking like garbage, right? I mean, no one's going to know because no one can see the inside of your head. Um, so you 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 do that yourself, and then after that, when you once you have the proof. Um, you go out and you solicit more funds and there's very, very few places you can go to for grants and funds. And one of them is the Sundance Institute. Really, thank you to them um, who believed in the footage and believed in me. And then another in, um, place is a nonprofit called Cinereach that's in New York. And they, you know, they support films like The Florida Project, Sorry to Bother You, We the Animals, like, you know, small, unusual films. So they had faith in me just based on, on talking to me and listening to me and, and looking at the footage. And then you went to Sundance, and then you won Best Documentary Director, and then you took it all over the world to festivals. Seems to me there's a message here for all teenage rebels who love film. Yeah, and that is, it's never too early, and it's never too late. I mean, you never know how what life is going to throw you, so you, it just might be that it might take a while, but be patient. You never know how your story is going to reach the world. And also, there is never a story that's too small. You know, like this is this, a, a story about an episode in a, the smallest place in the world. And now it's being beamed to like every conceivable corner in the world with, by Netflix. So I find that really surreal. Like that is the truest, like stranger than fiction aspect of this entire story. Shirkers is a naughty detective yarn, a funny Valentine to Singapore, and one of the year's most ardent expressions of movie love. That's what Justin Chang wrote. In the L.A. Times, he called it an entrancing feat of cinematic reclamation. Shirkers is streaming now on Netflix, and there's a everywhere in the world, and there's a screening in L.A. at LACMA, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, with, followed by a Q&A with Sandy Tan, Tuesday, November 27th, 7.30 p.m. in the Bing Theater, which is not long for this world. They're going to tear down the Bing Theater oh and replace it with the new museum. <gasps> Uh, this screening is free. Reservations are recommended. You can get a reservation right now at online. You have to go online. Go to my.lacma.org backslash events. Then you get a big calendar. You go to November 27th. There are movers, there are shakers, and there are shirkers. Thank you. Sandy Tan, thank you for shirkers, and thanks for coming in <laughs> thank today. Thank you so much. This was fun. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, John Nichols and David Dayan. Uh, John Nichols talked about national politics. David Dayan talked about California. Thanks to our engineer for today, Lisette Tapiz. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>